you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10, and we're going to go verses 24 through 29. I tried to find something, you know, something Thanksgiving-ish, but it didn't, that just wasn't happening. And, and then earlier this week, my son and I, I, I came across a word while I was getting, preparing for my uh, teaching tonight, and it was uh, from Kant's, Emmanuel Kant. Um, and I, me and my son last night were going back and forth on it, what it meant, and it was one of those long German words. Germans have words for everything, literally. And some of the words don't translate exactly, and this was one of those words that Kant introduced into philosophy that was just, and it, it just ate my brain up for the last couple of days, and I thought, you know, we just got to get away from that because I don't understand. Everybody had a varying opinion. So um, we're just going to go stick kind of with the text tonight. So in John chapter 20, verse 24, now Thomas called the twin, one of the 12, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas said unto them, Jesus, um, and um, and after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Amen? So I want to talk to you tonight about facing doubt. Facing doubt. In Hebrews chapter 11, we read about the hall of faith. Go to the next slide. Does anybody know what this is? Anybody? You know, how many of you ever went to Sunday school? It's a flannel board. Flannel board. You remember the flannel boards? Anybody remember flannel board? We had the little felt things and you stuck them on the wall. This, was a, this is a flannel board of Jesus coming out of the tomb. And when you were in Sunday school, you remember seeing about the heroes of faith on the flannel board. Go to the next one. Here's another one. This is more familiar. This is David and Goliath, the flannel boards. These were high-tech. Sunday school materials back in the day. This was high tech. This was, this was it right here. If you had a flannel board. So this is where we learned about the heroes, uh, the heroes of faith from Hebrews chapter 11. And we read about their stories. We've heard about their stories. And uh, when you're back in Sunday school back in those days, they put them all on the board. And they, just, they were just uh, people to emulate, like David, just a little boy named David, had five smooth stones, you know, J-E-S-U-S, Jesus, or F-A-I-T-H, faith. And that works out really good, but I don't think David spoke Hebrew, so I mean English, so I don't think that really translated F-A-I-T-H or J-E-S-U-S. But anyway, one thing about all of these people of faith had, they all had doubt. Every one of them had doubts. Pastor's been teaching in Genesis where Abraham was given the promise that God said, you're going to have a son in his old age, and Abraham basically laughed at God because he doubted it. 
He had doubts that this could happen. Even though God was telling him it was going to happen, he still had doubts. Francis Bacon said, if a man begins with certainties, he shall end in doubts. But if he will be content to begin with doubts, he shall end in certainties. We come to God with questions, and God oftentimes will answer all of our questions. But it's okay to come to him with doubts. Those things don't, doubt does not intimidate God. Our doubt and our question doesn't scare God. Now, I'm not telling us to abide in doubt, but it's okay to ask God questions. Some of us grew up where it was, we, we had this idea of God being offended if we asked or questioned anything. But the Bible tells us, ask and it shall be given to you. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. God knows that we're going to have questions because there are things within our perception, within our reality, that are very, very limited to our experience. And God goes beyond all of our experience. God goes beyond all of our reality. So there are going to be times that God's going to say something or do, have us do something that may not make any sense at the time. And we just have to step out on faith. For, right, if you go to the next slide there. Doubt is a feeling of uncertainty or lack of conviction. Verb, to be uncertain about, consider questionable or unlikely, hesitant to believe. A noun, a feeling of uncertainty about the truth, reality, or nature of something. Now, how could all of these heroes of faith that we saw on the flannel board when we were in Sunday school, how could these people have doubts? God spoke to them. God spoke to every one of them. I mean, he spoke to Moses in, in a burning bush that wasn't consumed. He called down a pillar of fire. Walls crumbled. Fire fell. Giants fell. But the fact is, every one of the people of faith in the Bible had doubts. They had questions. They had things that God, they needed God to answer for them. Are you all out there? Is this, this thing on? All right, good. Y'all just nod, just nod. In John chapter 20, verses 24 through 25, I think that Thomas gets a bad rap. We say doubting Thomas. Nobody wants to be doubting Thomas. We remember him on the flannel board. He wasn't painted in a very good light because he doubted. Because he said, you know, unless I see the prince in, in his hands, unless I can touch the, the, uh, his side, I won't believe and so he had reservations about Jesus. He had reservations about what the others were telling him. Jesus, or Thomas was asking for proof of Jesus rising from the dead. Now you think about it, that's not every day somebody comes back out of the grave. So if somebody comes and tells you they saw someone raised from the dead, I think it's pretty normal for us to kind of question that. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, I would. And Thomas was asking for proof. The others came and said, we have seen the Lord. We've seen him. He's alive. We were all locked in this room, and all of a sudden, Jesus pops in, and he says, peace to us, which is pretty good, because if somebody just pops into the middle of the room that's supposed to be dead, I think you want to calm them down. Just everybody calm down. It's me. No worries. It's me. So what Thomas said, unless I see the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, one of the reasons I think that Thomas um, is often misunderstood is because this was a traumatic event. 
The last seven days or the days leading up to this time were very traumatic for him and the rest of the disciples. In, a, in seven days, they saw Jesus come, go from the hero to the zero. He comes into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. Everybody's waving the palm branches, laying him down in the road for the, for the donkey to walk on, and everybody's singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna on Sunday. And by Friday, everybody's crying, crucify, crucify, crucify. So in a, just a matter of days, their whole world got turned upside down. He had followed Jesus for roughly three years, and he was called to be a disciple. He was called by Jesus to be a disciple. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever studied um, what it was like in the first century um, Jewish tradition about being a follower of a, a rabbi, being one of his, uh, what they call the Tal- Talmudin, and was part of his yeshiva or his learning school. But this was a big deal in Hebrew culture. It was a very big deal. Not everybody could just go and say, I'm going to follow a rabbi and I'm going to become one of his disciples and one day I will be a rabbi myself. Nobody, it just didn't happen for everybody. Another example would be like being, playing basketball. You start off in grade school, everybody's playing, and then in junior high, a few, a few more, uh, a lot of people have been weeded out, and then when you get into high school, even more have been weeded out, and then when you get into college, even fewer go on to college to play basketball, and then from college, only a select few get drafted into the NBA. This is what that meant to be a follower of a rabbi. You were somebody that had promise. You had somebody that had ability. Somebody saw something in you that would say, hey, you know, he may make a good rabbi one day. This just wasn't for everybody. This was only for those that they saw had promise. Now, all the Hebrew boys went to school up to a certain age. They'd memorize the, the scriptures and up to a certain point. And then if, after that point, up until the, their bar mitzvah, they would, they would determine, does this guy have promise or does this guy should he go into the family business? And so this was Jesus' disciples. None of these guys were scholars. None of these guys were top of the Hebrew school. None of these guys had been selected. They didn't have any potential to be the followers, the disciples of a rabbi. But Jesus calls them. So this was a very, very, very big deal. Because here's guy, here's Peter and uh, his brother Andrew. They are fishermen. And one day they're fishermen. Now they're telling everybody, hey, we're, we're, we're going to be a part of this guy's yeshiva. He, we're going to be part of his learning school. We're going to be following Jesus. We're going to learn about his yoke. That's what they called their teaching was their yoke. He's, we're going to take his yoke on us. And one day we're going to be like him because that's what the purpose, of, that's what the rabbi did. He selected young men that he felt could carry on his tradition or be like him. And so Jesus selects all these guys that the rest of society said aren't going to make it. And he makes them disciples. So this was just like way off the map for them. So this was where Thomas was. He had been selected. 
Those men, young men who showed great promise in this initial phase of learning were encouraged to continue their education following their bar mitzvah. This would entail studying the wisdom and authoritative interpretation of the Torah by the sages known as the yoke of Torah. After that next multi-year phase, the young men who continued to show great promise were further encouraged to extend their training by spending time, typically from the ages of 17 to 20, with a rabbi in a multi-year yeshiva experience. There they would hone their ability to interpret God's word as it relates to all practical issues of daily life. If a rabbi judged a potential disciple to have the capability to become just like him, to emulate him, then the rabbi would utter those cherished words of acceptance every potential disciple longed to hear, follow me. With that inviting phrase, the disciple to be knew he had survived the rabbi's demanding pass-fail admissions process. So Thomas was probably in an apprenticeship in his family trade, He would have not been considered yeshiva material. Jesus literally changed his life. Where he thought he was going, he wasn't going there anymore. Now he was part of the Messiah. He heard the teachings of Jesus. He saw the miracles. And he was convinced that Jesus was the promised Messiah and that the messianic kingdom was upon him. And then in the space of a few days from Sunday Till the time of Christ's crucifixion, he thought that everything that he believed to be true was ripped to shreds. He just watched it all disintegrate right before his eyes. The life that he thought he was going to have with Jesus, he believed to be over. All he could see was going back to the family business, going back to the way things were three years ago, prior, and all of his hope was gone. So when the others came in and they were all ecstatic, about seeing the Lord, that the Lord had came back and showed himself to be alive, he was not going to get caught up into the emotion of it. Now, this is my interpretation. I could be completely wrong about this, but that's the way I see it because this is the way I would process this. I wouldn't allow myself to get all caught up into something that I, again, and uh, be in a situation where I have it all ripped out from under me. Thomas had it all taken away, and now he was back in a situation where they're saying Jesus is back, and I don't believe that he wanted to get his hopes up. So unless I see it, I'm not going to believe it. Because emotions are powerful. They are powerful to alter one's perception. They said, we saw the Lord. We saw the Lord. They saw him arrested tortured, Thomas had, tried, executed, and laid in a tomb. So he was not going to take anyone's word that Jesus was alive. He saw the proof. He saw them kill him. And now that he was saying he was alive, so now he just wasn't going to get all caught up into this euphoria that Jesus was back. And besides that, he was not asking for something that the other disciples or Jesus hadn't already done to the other disciples. If you go back a few verses there, in verses 19 and 20, Jesus appeared to the disciples when they were all locked up in a room, and he, asked, he showed them his hands, and he showed them his side. So he was saying, unless I see the nails, unless I see his side, then I'm not going to believe. So go to the next slide. My slides, my slides gone. 
How many of you remember this movie? Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And you know the three tests that he had to go through. He had to go through three tests to be able to get to the Holy Grail. The first test was the breath of God. And what was the key phrase to that, the riddle? Only the penitent man will pass. And then it comes out and the sword's coming. You gotta, you gotta kneel or you're gonna be decapitated. All right? And then the second one was the, the word of God. Only in the footsteps of God will he proceed. So he had to spell in the Latin. He had to spell Jehovah in the Latin and jumped on those and got across to the next phase. And what happened along the way, you know, his father had been shot and they had, the, the bad guy was telling him to hurry up to get to the grail. So this is a way, kind of a motivator to get him to pass all the tests so that he could get the grail and they could have the power of that, that the grail held. And so then he stands on the very last one. And the third test was uh, the path of God. Only in the leap from the lion's head will he prove his worth. And when he gets to this point, you know this is where he's standing on the edge of that huge chasm inside the cave. And the other side's a little opening. And he thinks, there's no way I can get over there. There's no way I can jump. And you see his father laying on the ground, and his father's saying, you've got to believe, boy. You've got to believe. And so he's trying to muster up his faith, and you see him, he's, he's mustering up his faith, and I don't know what it is, but people, when they, when they feel like they're going to believe, that to believe or to receive faith, you've got to close your eyes. So he closes his eyes, and he's got his hand on his chest, and, and he takes that first step, and he believed that he was actually going to fall. He really didn't expect anything to be there that would catch his foot. So he's shocked when he finds that there's, it's just an optical illusion that there's actually a bridge there that you can't see, but it's there. So he steps and he walks across and he gets the grail, saves his father, and then they save the world, that kind of thing. There's something in all of us that we want to believe. We want to believe when God tells us something. And he'll, say, he'll tell us to do something or he'll say something in his word that kind of confuses us and we're a little, we have our doubts about it, but we want to believe it, we want to receive it, but it just seems impossible. It just seems really hard. We've all been there. God said, just have faith, just believe, just pray about it. And don't you just love it when people say, you just, just pray about it. Just pray about it because it just seems too simplistic. Just seems like that's just too easy. Just pray about something and it's all going to work out. We want to believe, but it all seems impossible. For eight days, Thomas was st stood on the edge of this chasm for eight days waiting to get to the other side. He heard what they were saying. He, he, he heard what their testimonies that they had seen Jesus, but he wanted to believe, but he was rooted in reality of where he was. He couldn't see that God had already made a way across for him. Then in verses 26 to 28, go ahead and go to the next slide. Jesus appears in the middle of a secure room. This time, just like he did the first time, he appears in the middle of a secure room, and he speaks to Thomas. Now, note when he spoke to Thomas, he didn't rebuke him. 
He didn't condemn him. He didn't criticize him, but he speaks to Thomas, and he extends his hand, and he asks him to touch it and see the nail prints. Touch my side. See where they've pierced my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. Jesus wanted him to believe. And at that moment, something transpired in Thomas's life. It, 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 it transformed him. It, it, it made him realize that, that God is sovereign. God is in control. And he says, falls on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. Now, each one of us, have experienced life, and there is no experience that any of us have or have had that is unique to you. Now, I know you'll think that I've going through something, nobody understands, nobody's ever been through this. Guess what? There's over 9 billion people on this planet. Somebody's been what you're going through what you're going through. We've all had similar circumstances. We've all had similar situations. We've all had similar hurts. We've all experienced things that are beyond our control. Things that happened that you may not have even caused. And people say, and, and well-meaning people think, well, maybe God's just trying to teach you something. This is a test. God sent this. God broke your leg or God put you in a head-on collision with that semi for a reason. It makes God sound like he's psychotic. I love you. Did you ever ever remember the movie Misery? All right. I'm going to break your legs because I love you so much, and if you just escape, it's going to be, this is only for your own good. So then God's not like that. God's not going to break our legs to teach us something. All right. God, there are things that happen in life that are just the course of this world, and there are things that happen to all of us that are just part of life. Things that happen beyond our control. That's life. See, as humans, we like certainty. We like to have God all figured out. We like to know that we have all the answers for God about God. We know all there is to know about him. We know where he goes to church. We know what, what he does, where, what he likes to have. We've even got a wristband that says we know what he would do. We like to have certainty. And so when things happen outside of our little box, it just messes up our faith. How can this be? How can this be? What did I ever do? What is it? There is no God. There can't be any God. Why did this happen? I was doing what God told me to do, and yet my world crumbled apart. Now, a good example that I like, always think about in this situation is, is um, when Jesus just fed the 5,000, they were going across, the, he told his disciples immediately after, he loaded them up in a boat, told them to go to the other side, I'll meet you over there, and he goes up and he goes to pray. And the Bible says that while they were on the Sea of Galilee, that a storm came up, and it was boisterous, and the boat was, was being tossed back and forth, and they were afraid. I don't know how many of you have ever been on the sea during a storm, but it is frightening. I've been on a cruise ship between, caught between two hurricanes, and this is a big boat, big boat with thousands of people, and it's being tossed like a cork in the ocean. And when you're standing on that deck and you see the magnitude of the sea, and you see how high these waves can come up and crash, you, you feel like you're so powerless. It's just ominous 
when when a storm comes up on the sea. You roll down the stairs, you roll out of your bed, it tosses you back and forth, they close off the deck, and you're thinking, this is it, this is it, this is it. We're all going to die. And this is what the disciples were thinking when they were on the Sea of Galilee. No doubt they were all afraid they were going to die. Didn't Jesus tell them to go to the other side? He told them to go over there. So why was this happening? Why did this happen? Why did Jesus send them out into the middle of a life-threatening storm? And so the boat is being tossed back and forth, and they see Jesus come walking to, to them from a, on the water, and they think it's a ghost, and they really think that somebody's coming to take them to the other side now, all right? Our lives are over. We're starting to see the dead come walking to us. And so the, somebody calls out, it, the, the, Jesus calls out to him, it's me, it's me. And Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, command me to come out to you. And Jesus said, come. So Peter just jumps over the side of the boat. He takes off across the waves. And the Bible says while he's there, he saw that the wind was boisterous. He saw that the waves were, were, were coming up, and it was, it was really a bad situation to be in. And he started to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus walks over to him, reaches out his hand, and he says, dude, I didn't think you'd do it. (laughs) But he takes him back to the boat, and he says, oh, you little faith, why did you doubt? Why do we doubt? Because we're people, and people doubt. That's why we doubt. We're human. Circumstances, storms, and even doubts still don't change what God has said. It doesn't change anything. God said it. God will deliver it. God will do it. We find ourselves in these situations, and we think it's too hard, that I'm too hurt, or my faith has given way to doubt. There's no way God could use me now. Doubt doesn't mean you're evil. It means that we're all human. God expects us to have our doubts, and he's prepared to take care of those things. In verse 29, go to the next slide. So how do you overcome doubt? How do you overcome doubt? Number one, have faith. Now, I know that sounds too simplistic. It really does. Have faith. Just have faith. But faith helps to remove doubt, and the Bible tells us that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What are you filling your mind with? Because the more you think on a problem, the more you think on your doubts, the bigger they become. Secondly, doubt can only be removed by action. Take action. James 2.26 says, faith without corresponding actions is useless. Our faith is going to compel us to do something, to move forward. It's like riding a bike. Albert Einstein said it this way, managing life or balancing life. He said it's like riding a bicycle. As long as you keep moving, you keep balance. But you have to keep moving. So keep moving. Number three, stay connected with the right people. People will either build up your faith or they will tear your faith down. Get around people that build your faith. There's two things that speak volumes about people. 
what you read and who you hang around because it will affect your life. So you may have a mind filled with questions. Doubt may be choking out your faith, but God will show up and make himself known because he is sovereign. And once you come through your season of doubt, you will see him differently, not as a dead rabbi, but as Lord and God.